welcome to the Willow in the Windies with David Oram. Cricket, lovely cricket, at last where I saw it. Cricket, lovely cricket, at last where I saw it. Yardley tried his best, God had won the test. They gave the crowd plenty fun, the second test and West Indies won. With those little pals of mine Hello and welcome to The Willow in the Windies The Caribbean Cricket Podcast with me, David Oram I'm joined on this uh, extra midweek edition I'm delighted to be joined by a successful World Cup winner um, Graham West, the under-19 coach of the West Indies That won in Bangladesh recently uh, And somebody I saw recently in Barbados Graham, thank you ever so much for taking the time to chat to me that's a pleasure, David. Have you uh, have you got used to this uh, level of success? Uh, 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 is your is your is your wife now sort of suitably deferential to this World Cup winner? Uh, it's it's uh, it's slowly starting to sink in. Uh, I think the re- the reaction and the and the reception that we received as a, as a team in in Barbados kind of uh, took us a little bit by surprise, <laughs> and um, it's been very satisfying to see the reaction that the players have received when they've got back to their respective territories. Yeah. Uh, my, my wife is still basking <laughs> in, in the glory. <laughs> <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> so it, it, I can imagine her going to the school and they say, Joe, is that, I saw your husband on the telly the other day. What's all that about? And, yes. <laughs> yeah, she, uh, she, she learned a little bit about cricket in the space of about 20 minutes during the, uh, the final. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's, uh, it's, like I said, it's been, it's been nice. And I think I was talking to um, Charles Colville last week. Right. One of the things that he mentioned to me or that he inquired was the ambition of the younger players. Was it playing for the West Indies? Was it IPL, T20 cricket? And I think mm. one of the messages that, that comes out of this is the reception that the players have received and the recognition as being successful playing for a West Indies team is something that they will never get from, from playing Big Bash, IPL, um, Interesting. whatever it may be. Yeah. So I I kind of said that I'm, I'm sure that the players have a number of ambitions and a number of goals, but hopefully what they've learned from this experience is, is that being a successful West Indian player, uh, when you when you head back to your your, your territories, uh, there, there's nothing more satisfying and, uh, and rewarding than that. That's a very interesting point, and it has been a downward spiral in West Indies cricket in the last 25, 30 years, and... Um, Failure can breed failure. Success, hopefully, in this case, will breed success. I suppose the same sort of um, sense of adulation and achievement was one of those things that motivated and continued to motivate those incredibly successful West Indian cricketers of the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and I think uh, um, once, you, once you get on a, on a roll as, as such, that side dominated for a significant period of time. Hmm. But when you when you think back to, to the tournament and the momentum that, that we picked up in a, in a short space of time, mm. and how quickly the the, the general public um, started to their interest started to grow, I, I think was, uh, that was a very interesting.
interesting to me. And, and clearly, you can never guarantee success, but what it does go to show is that if you can start to put together some successful performances, the interest suddenly starts to pick up. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's obviously something that we hope can be can we built upon. Um, before I called you just now to have this have this chat I did take the time to go back and listen to uh, the conversation we had back at the early October uh, we talked then about uh, the under 19 program generally we were hoping to have a chat before you went off to the uh, World Cup but unfortunately for circumstances I, I couldn't do that but we did talk about the upcoming World Cup back in October and it was interesting even then that um, well there was a sense of reality but you didn't rule out the impossible um, I, I asked you at the time, um, it was getting out of the group stage, purely the height of ambitions. You said that was the immediate objective, but you did say you're only two games away from a final, and we both agreed that anything was possible, and, and well, it was. Yeah, and I think, on, on reflection, um, a lot of the sides that were in the competition, India, England... Pakistan, Sri Lanka, they, they, were, they were quite well-known quantities in terms of what their players had already achieved in, in first-class cricket, mm. uh, whereas our guys were still very unknown, uh, and therefore, when, when, we, when we spoke in October, you want to keep a sense of perspective and, and, and reality, not get too far ahead of yourself. Mm. It was that sense of, you know, how far can this particular group of players go, given that they've not really played a great deal of cricket together, yeah. um, but they do have some, some potential, they, they have some, some great skills. And that's why the games that we played when we first got to Bangladesh and, and the warm-up games prior to the, the group matches were the most crucial part of, of our journey, because that's really where... We were able to watch, observe the players, um, pick the, 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 the positives out of the games because there were some performances and some good signs and really identify the areas where we were a little bit short. Clearly, the, the results against Bangladesh would suggest that we were some way behind them. Yeah. Um, so there was the, the good thing was there was time for us to be able to discuss the games, the performances, and there was a lot of time in between to, to practice. We, we got some, some good training facilities um, in Bangladesh, both in Chittagong and, and in Dakar. And that allowed us to really develop the areas. We could be very specific in our practice. It's a, it's a, we were only practicing for a 50-over competition. Mm. Uh, the, players, the players' roles were, were, were pretty clearly defined by then. They all knew what they were likely to need to do to be successful. Um, so I think that the collection of those um, elements developed this team in a very quick space of time. And that was what I think surprised a lot of people at the competition, mm -hmm. just how quickly the players developed and progressed. But when you consider the learning um, opportunities that we had and put that to, to alongside the, the, the talent and the skills and the ability that the team possessed already... Um, it all came together very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does seem, as you said then, and as we spoke back in October, that um, you'd had little time together going into the tournament. Um, 
the, the guys had little international match practice or experience. But yes, that made them an unknown quantity to oppositions. And okay, as you alluded to, in the warm-up games, you lost, was it all three games to Bangladesh? But, but your guys bonded. Yeah, no, I think although there was a shortage of cricket, the, the time that we had spent with the players going back to January 2015... Easter camp, and then they were all together for the um, regional under-19 competition, yeah. although on, on opposing teams. They were all together in, in the same hotels, and the camp after that, the camp in Grenada. The guys had spent a lot of time together, and, and the personalities had, had started to develop. The relationships had, had started to develop, and therefore the, the, the playing of the competitive cricket was kind of the final part of our, of our preparation. But we knew that we had a good group, a group that understood one another. Um, you know, there was, there's a few quiet ones in there. There's a, there's a couple of lively <laughs> ones in there. But the combinations were, were good. Um, and, and they, um, particularly in, in Bangladesh, where we weren't able to get out of the hotel for security reasons, the, right. the guys had to spend a lot of time together. And, uh, you know, they did that successfully. Mm. Talk about those uh, security things, since you mentioned it now. Uh, when we spoke back in October, uh, the Australian senior side had just cancelled their tour to Bangladesh, and we wondered whether that would have implications to the actual hosting of the tournament, the Under-19 World Cup in Bangladesh. Subsequent to that, the Australian Under-19 itself pulled out of the tournament. Um, I don't know about you, I didn't think that devalued the tournament. I don't know whether other people outside did. Um, what, what, apart from being limited within your hotel, Graham, what, what were the wider security um, issues? Well, it was, it was more extensive than anything that I've experienced before. Right. Uh, um, as an ICC competition, clearly Bangladesh could not afford for anything to happen, mm. uh, with Australia pulling out so close to the, to the start of the competition. <clears throat> uh, people were suddenly probably a little bit more alerted to, to the situation. Um, I think had, had Australia participated, I don't think that would have been the case. But with them pulling out so close, clearly it brought that to, to everybody's attention. And we had, um, you know, Dwayne Gill was with us as the manager and he, he experienced um, the situation in Bangladesh with the, with the previous West Indies tour. So right. uh, there was a little bit of background there for us. But I have to say... I felt very, very safe and very, very comfortable throughout the, the six weeks that we were in Bangladesh. Uh, I felt that the, the security went way over and above what you would normally uh, receive, mm. but I didn't feel that added uh, any any additional pressure or, or fear. Uh, it was done very professionally, um, and therefore you, you it just enabled you to get on with your job and Ultimately, that was what you were there to do. Yes, there was there was a heavy presence, but once you got down to the cricket, that was uh, that was your focus. You mentioned uh, Dwayne Gill there, who was uh, the manager of the uh, of the touring party, but he'd had to step up, hadn't he? Because he wasn't originally in that position. Yeah, that's right. He was, he's been with the team since the since uh, we we started in, in January, and Courtney Brown had assumed the management role. Um, Courtney was, was not going to be able to make um, the, the World Cup. So, um, so Dwayne 
kind of filled in when we were in Grenada, which was very handy because of his, his knowledge on the ground in Grenada. The camp ran extremely smoothly. He was able to get everything that we required in terms of logistics. And then he continued his his role at the World Cup, and you know it was it was an important role because when you do get to World Cup with all of the media commitments and the logistical commitments, you need somebody with the finger on the pulse, so to speak, just to make sure that everybody's in the right place at, at the right time, and that he was an integral part to the to the group. Yeah, yeah. We'll move on to the the games themselves and the players in just a moment. But while we've talked about uh, uh, Dwayne Gill. Um, I know you didn't have Vaz but Drakes there because he'd been a big part in the build-up but was with the uh, West Indies women's team. Uh, you also made very interesting comments um, recently in another interview where you talked about the influence of Cory Collinmore, who was there as bowling coach, specifically on how he helped um, Azari Joseph, who was he was the uh, the fast bowling sensation of the tournament. Um, what, what was it? What was what did Cory do with uh, Azari, which really helped him? Well, Vazzy and I had, had taken the group for the, for the best part of, of 12 months and, and during that time we were able to do a fair amount of technical work. The difference going into the competition when, when Corey joined the group hmm. was that it's too late to really uh, work on the technical side of things. You have to really focus, concentrate on the tactical, the, the game awareness element and that's where Corey was outstanding and, and in particular with, with Alzari because Alzari has genuine pace and, and ability uh, but in terms of the mindset, his mindset was still of a, a fast bowler looking for wickets, you know, trying to look at lots of short balls, lots of full balls, very attacking, very aggressive and in those first three games against Bangladesh, that was that wasn't really working for, for Alzari. Mm. It wasn't assisting the team in, in terms of what we were trying to do and build pressure and, and create lots of dot balls. So, so Corey's his work with, with Alzari was very much around getting him to think a little bit more about hitting, hitting a, a, an area more frequently, which was going to give the batsman difficulties, particularly early on in the innings. And then when he did come back for his second spell, was, was to maintain the, the same sort of um, standards of uh, length and line, particularly with the, with the ball a little bit older. But to, to build pressure over a period of time, rather than Alzari's initial mindset, was you know, to try and take a wicket with, with every ball. And uh, I don't think he took a wicket in the, in the three games against Bangladesh in the, in the, uh, at the start of the tour. But then he took 13 in the, in the competition. So mm. clearly the, the progress and the improvement started to, to come through. And, uh, and Corey takes a lot of credit, as does Alzari, for, for being able to process the information that was, that was put his way. He was uh, assisted in the second half of the tournament, from the quarterfinals onwards, by uh, uh, Chimar Holder. But early in the competition, as you said, you were in a group, Fiji, England, and... Who was the third team in your group, Graham? Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, of course. Yes, the, the third game. I'm thinking of that as a knockout game, which effectively it was. So you started off sure. against England, competed, uh, but lost. Uh, you, you said in the interview we did back in October, you said that the England game would be the indicator of where you stood. You did lose, but, you, but did you felt you competed sufficiently to show that you could progress in this tournament? There, there, was, some, there was some positive signs, but there was some... Uh... 
kind of there was a bit of a reality check for, for a couple of the players. We didn't bowl particularly well in the first 15 overs. And we, we always said the importance of, of starting games well and starting innings well. And England, England got off to a flyer. We never really managed to, to get that back. And, then, and they showed to us how to use a new ball. They took two wickets in the, in the first over. We, we were clearly chasing a big, big score to lose two of your top three in the first over without a run on the board. Yeah. Was always going to prove very difficult, but then we, you know, we applied ourselves with the bat. We saw with Kimo Paul played a a really nice innings towards the end. He was out to an outstanding catch when I think the England management uh, were just starting to get a little bit jittery. <laughs> um, but you know, England's professionalism on the day, their discipline with the ball, their discipline in the field, the ability to put the bad ball away was something that we we, we did. We didn't spend too much time on, but we certainly reflected on that and, and um, identified that that was an area that we really needed to improve on very quickly. Yeah. You mentioned the, the, you lost two wickets in the first over, and um, the two that went were Imlac and Hetmeyer coming in at three. But effectively, for the rest of the tournament, Pope batted at one, and Pope batted well in that game, scored 60 off 60 balls, which for him was a slow knock. Was it that dismissal that changed it round that with Pope coming in launching, um, was was that an influence on that decision? Um, Pope was always in, in the team to, to bat positively at the, at the top of the order. Tevin was a good foil for him because Tevin can, can play positively, but he's, he's, he likes to take his time, likes to play himself in. It gave us a, a left-right-hand combination, which is something that you, you would look for. The, the difficulty with, with the captain, with Hetmeyer, was that he got injured in Grenada at the very start of the camp. He turned his ankle quite uh, quite badly. Right. So when he got to Bangladesh, he hadn't played any cricket for the best part of six weeks and then didn't really get um, a score in, in the first three games. And I think it just um, it took him a little... He's a type of player, needs to be in, in, in form to... Just to perform consistently, and as soon as you know, we saw as soon as he made a score in the competition, um, then he really developed. But those first couple of games, he, he didn't get uh, any runs, and that put a little bit of pressure on the on the middle order when we were really looking to him as uh, as, as a kind of the player that, that would yeah. bat positively, but also make big contributions and. Um, as it turned out, Pope kind of took that responsibility on in those first three or four games because we knew he could he could strike the ball cleanly, but we also knew that uh, he does like to hit a little bit across the line and was, was going to give you a chance as, as a bowler, as a, as a fielding team. But his, um, his influence, without making really big scores, his influence on our progress and our development was very significant. Yeah, yeah. That took you on to a uh, game against Fiji, which... You won fairly comfortably. And then, what was effectively the eliminator against Zimbabwe, which, apart from being probably the best game of the tournament, obviously produced the talking point of the tournament. Uh, at the time, it was something that um, uh, yourself and many others, quite sensibly, really didn't have a, a comment upon, the man-cadding incident. But, um, you know, we're a couple of weeks away from it. But, you know, what were your own feelings at the time and about it generally? Well, I think the... The interesting thing about the Zimbabwe game for, for me was that, as you mentioned, 
our, our first objective was to, to get out of the group um, yeah. and finish in the top two. So of all the games in the competition, when I look back, the expectation and pressure was probably more in that game than, yeah. than any other. Yeah. And when you looked at what was what was riding on it, and we'd already seen South Africa and New Zealand had, had been eliminated. That's right. We didn't want to become the third major side to, to depart the, uh, the competition before the, the last eight. So there was, personally, I felt a little bit more pressure on the day, a little bit um, down to the expectation. And then it was, a, it was a strange game because it was a game where every time we, we threatened to get into a good position, <laughs> we, we, we made a silly mistake. There was a couple of very, very soft runouts. There was yep. a couple of more shots. And it actually came down to the last pair. The last pair put on 30 to, to get us to, you know, past 200 to something yep. that we felt was, was defendable. Um, and then apart from Alzari, we didn't bowl particularly well. Um, and the Zimbabwe pattern weren't under too much pressure, only needing around four and over. And then I think pretty much all of the guys on the side with Zimbabwe needing, I think, around about 30, 25 to win, six, six down with lots of overs left. Mm. They'd already um, written, written it off. And yeah. um, Shamar Springer bowled, bowled particularly well. Uh, at the end of the innings, he got he got a couple of key wickets, and then the run out, um, yeah. which was I think was the ninth wicket with with Hetmeyer, which is a fantastic piece of fielding. Yeah, it was the ninth. Um, they, they still need double figures. Then a number eleven's coming in, and you think, wow, you've you've got it <laughs> there. Just a good delivery. Uh, I think there was a, there was a drop catch at one point, and then there was the four that inside went edge up stumps. Mm. Which, which I was within a whisper, whisker of uh, hitting the hitting the stumps. So mm. the kind of the emotions now, three to win off the last over, uh, anything can happen. And, and as it turned out, something come that, <laughs> that nobody had seen or had planned for mm. took place. So clearly, the, the, my initial reaction was was shock at the breaking of the stumps by by Kimo Paul. Then you had the the weight with the um, with the third umpire coming into it, and that kind of gave you a, only about thirty seconds, but it gave you a little period just to have a little think about exactly what's going on. Is, is the captain going to uphold the the appeal? And there was a because it was something that I'd never experienced as as a coach or as a player. Hmm. Um, the, the feeling was just a little bit um, uneasy because it was a totally new. Um, situation and scenario for, for me. Hmm. Um, you could tell from the players' response and reaction when the when wicket was was given, the decision was given. That they were all behind the captain and his decision and, and supported it, and, and clearly were overjoyed to um, to win the game on on the basis of that um, dismissal. Yeah. And I don't think they really thought too much into it as they were coming off. Uh, but then when you saw the opposition lock themselves in the dressing room, refuse to come out, you started to recognise the, uh, the situation um, and the feeling from the, from the opposition. We all know that what we did was within the laws of the game, as has happened before. But we also know that it is going to prompt um, a lot of debate, a lot of discussion and 
given the, the nature of the competition and the situation that it happened in, it got even more attention than, uh, than it would have done ordinarily. Ironically as well, that um, because of it, it actually really gave the competition and the West Indies side much greater exposure and suddenly it, the, the eyes of the world, uh, the, the wider cricketing world that perhaps might not usually watch under-19 competitions <laughs> were watching as well. But one thing within this ground that lots of people commented that there was no warning given, that wasn't actually the case, was it? The, the batsman in the, in the penultimate over that was bowled by Shamar Springer uh, had left his ground on several occasions in, in that over. And because the captain was fairly close in, I think he was at mid-wicket, uh, there had been a made ref that the batsmen had been made aware that we, as in the captain and the bowler, had spotted it. And at one point, Springer actually stopped in his, his run-up and, and started again. Yeah. Uh, but what wasn't, uh, well, what didn't take place was that there was no involvement with the umpire at that point, which on reflection... Uh, was something that I said to the players afterwards that it would have been in their best interest to have involved the umpire at that point just so that there was clarity on the field yeah. that we were aware of, of, of what the batter was attempting to do um, and that you know clearly he is taking a risk by um, continuing with that action. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, personally, I had no problem with it. I was shocked, but being shocked doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. I thought it was well within the laws of the game. I thought it was pretty smart cricket, in actual fact. Um, I, I object to, to guys wandering out of their uh, creases, backing up. I don't see any difference between a, a guy, even by an inch, trying to get a head start uh, on a run, than I would if a guy tries to beat the gun in the 100 metres Olympic final. Yeah, I, I, as I said, it, I'd never been involved in a game where, where it had taken place. And it wasn't really until the evening when I started to think a little bit more about it and spoke with, with a couple of, uh, of our management team. But, uh, you know, my, my, my whole outlook on it started to, to develop. And, uh, and as you said, you make a lot of comparisons with, within cricket and within other sports, and all of which points to, yes, it was, it was the right thing to do, or it was certainly... Um, within the, the, the confines of the game. And I think what it, what it poses is it poses the, the, the question as to how the lawmakers can put something in place which doesn't prompt such reaction, mm. given that it's, it's within the, the rules of the game. People like to talk about the, the spirit of the game. The, the game is not uh, upheld by the spirit of the game. It's, it's the laws of the game that we play to. The spirit of the game is something that is, 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 a, is a nice... It's something that clearly goes back a long way in history and a lot of people like to think that the game is played in such a way that we can work within that. But clearly the game has moved on and there are a number of elements within the spirit of the game that no longer are upheld and yet they don't prompt such responses as the run-out that took place. Yeah, I think there'll be... I think there'll be more man caddings and, until batsmen uh, stay in their crease. Um, watching myself on television, particularly in the immediate aftermath of the incident, uh, I thought Ian Bishop came across very, very well uh, in fielding a, a great deal of flack, particularly from Pommy and Bangwa, who understandably was very upset about it, and reflected though the way those Zimbabwe players felt. Um, 
Did you talk to him, Bishop, around that time at all? Well, I, I, I listened to some of the bits that Ian um, said on, on, the, on the TV afterwards in, in the dressing room. And at the time, was was very grateful for uh, how he spoke. Mm. Uh, we got back to the hotel, and that the very next morning we moved back to Dakar, and the media guys ended up in a different hotel in, in Dakar to, to ourselves. So we didn't actually get to speak and, until the next game, uh, which was you know, five or six days after the, um, the Zimbabwe game, by which time we'd, we'd all moved on. So um, I think that there is, there is always an avenue there to, to discuss and, and reflect on the laws. And that's really what, what came out when, when you listen to both sides of the argument. It, it, it just reinforces that uh, um, there, there really needs to be something in there that takes away this perception that it's it, you're doing the wrong thing. Mm. And, and Bish was very good in you know applauding Kimo Paul in, in terms of his awareness and, and what he did. Yeah, no, I, I I totally agree with that. Took you to the quarterfinal against Pakistan. Well, just on one, one final point on the the, the, the man caddy though, I think the way the tournament finished with West Indies as winners, people. We'll remember the man-cadding incident, but when they think of Kimo Paul and the West Indies, I think they will remember more of them as winners than as the guys that did the run-out. And I think their own character, their own ebullience, that shone through more than, more than just that single incident. Uh, well, I think when it, when it happened and, and a couple of days afterwards, you kind of thought to yourself that the only way that we can move on from this and this pushed into the background is to just go out and play with real flair, yeah. be positive and see where it takes us. And as you say, by, by the time that um, we lifted the, the trophy, people were talking about the, 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 the good cricket, the positive cricket. Yeah. And the way that we played and, and going back to the, the great sides and the comparisons being made with the, the brand of cricket that was played. And yes, but the, the situation in, in Zimbabwe will, will not disappear and it will not be forgotten. But hopefully that uh, we're, we're remembered for the right reasons rather than for, for something as you know, as what people seem and deem as, as controversial as the as the runner. No, I think I think without question, I think even those people that might have not liked the run out. I think people were delighted and thrilled with West Indies winning the competition. As you said, that was the biggest game of the competition, in, or the biggest pressure game, if you like, of the competition. That expectation to get out of the group, expected to beat Zimbabwe, and then the next three games, yes, there was pressure, but in each of those three games, the guys were the underdogs. The, the quarterfinal against Pakistan um, had them in a great deal of trouble, and then there was still an excellent... 100 by Umar Masood, um, but it still gave you a total that you were confident of chasing. Yeah, well, the quarterfinal saw the introduction of Shamar Holder, and this is really where things started to, to come together. Yeah. Uh, we, would have, we would have batted first had we won the toss. We lost the toss, and therefore we were in the field. But um, there was a little bit in the wicket at um, Fatula. We, we played uh, South Africa in one of the warm-up games. Um, and therefore, we felt at the time there was a little bit in the wicket on that day. Both sides actually bowled quite a lot of pace and, and seam. So the uh, the early overs, as we mentioned before, 
potential. We wanted to get off to good starts, and you know we were we were an unknown quantity going into the competition, and we had a bowler that nobody had, had seen before. So mm. uh, they couldn't have done any homework on him, and um, and Shamar complimented Alzari beautifully. He was <laughs> he was attacking. He got the ball into good areas. He, he moved the ball around a little bit, and in fact he picked up the first couple of wickets in that in that game, which yeah. you know you when you need a little bit of momentum and you need a little bit of confidence suddenly it, it started to flow and we, we had them 50 for 5 and, um, and we, were, we were dominating the game as you said the lad produced a fantastic innings to make 100 uh, we lost our way a little bit going into the last 10 overs uh, but only needing just just around about 4.5 and, and over mm. we'd, we'd given ourselves a, a chance and this is where the influence of Pope was, was so significant because by going out and getting the team off to a flyer in the first five overs, um, it took it took the pressure off the the rest of the batters because they needed to score at four three and a half and over to to chase the target down rather than sixes and sevens against some good spinners which were never going to be easy to to um, you know, score heavily on. Yeah. Yeah, and with the exception of Carty, who was run out, everybody contributed. One or two dismissals were perhaps a little bit uh, naive, but then these guys are up to 19, so you expect them to either get caught on the boundary or, or stumped. And uh, job uh, mission accomplished. Uh, you got to the semi-finals, the only side outside of the of a, the Asian subcontinent to reach the semi-finals there in uh, uh, Bangladesh. And coming up, up up against the team you'd already lost three times to, but you knew all about Bangladesh. Yeah, it was it was that was the, the positive really. In that the guys didn't need to do too much homework. They knew the bowlers, they knew the batters, and they knew the way that Bangladesh were going to look to play. They were going to look always going to look to bat first. Yeah. Uh, always look to to build in the first thirty thirty five overs, and then really try and cash in the last fifteen overs. And then utilise their spin, be, be very aggressive in the field, and, and defend whatever they um, whatever they had scored. So we we knew their game plan, we knew their players. What we needed to do was was learn from the mistakes that we'd made in those initial three games, uh, take some of the confidence from the from the batting performance against Pakistan, and see where it took us. And again. We were able to make um, some some early inroads with uh, with the new ball, mm. which didn't allow Bangladesh to to get to the position that they would have liked to going into those last few overs. Although the captain played a very good innings, and and for me he was was probably um, one of the top three players in in the competition. Um, he, he batted particularly well, read the game very well. Yeah. So when we when we'd restricted them to to under two thirty. Um, yes, it was going to be a, a challenge because you know the quality of their of their spin attack and and the quality of the the fielding had been very high against us. But again, you know, Pope went out and and got us off to a really good start, and I think that that again that impacted on the rest of the team that we'd no longer feared the side that had beaten us three times very comprehensively. We were suddenly in a position where. We could match these guys, and, and we could actually take the game to them, which never really happened in those first three games. Yeah, yeah. And Hetmeyer and Springer both uh, scored very useful fifties, and uh, home by three wickets with eight balls to spare. 
The um, I was interested though. A lot's been said about the that the pace bowlers, particularly Joseph and uh, Kamar Holder, obviously. But Springer and Paul uh, at different times bowled a lot of overs late in the innings and were bowling very good full lengths. They bowled very medium pace, but with a lot of intelligence. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that people were querying earlier in the competition was why was the end of the, of the innings. Mm. And we'd identified that, that Kimo uh, Paul was, was our best bowler at, at the deck. He could bowl the Yorker more consistently than, than anybody else in the group. Yeah. And Springer has got quite good variation and, and variety. And therefore, they were the two guys that we felt were our best bowlers in the last 10 overs. So that was very much our, our game plan. And I actually I looked yesterday at some of the statistics. And at the end of the competition, both Springer and Kimo Paul, their economy rates were under five. Yeah. And given that they bowled so many overs at the end of the inning, mm. uh, this reflects just how well that they bowled. Yeah. And under pressure as well. Insides um, trying to push on and... Um particularly in that Zimbabwe game. What was also interesting, as the tournament went on, uh, Pope, who was quite a handy little off-break bowler, but he didn't have particularly good figures in the semi-final. Come the final, you didn't bowl a single over of spin. Uh, was that a tactic you discussed before the game? Well, kind of by by the Bangladesh game and certainly by the India game, we'd, we'd recognised that, that our seamers were more effective and that our spinners were, were playing, were bowling against batters that were very, very proficient against spin bowling. Mm. Uh, any any loose ball, any bad ball got punished. Um, and the wickets didn't really spin, which is probably what the guys here are more familiar with, the, the, the ball that turned. The ball tended to um, go very straight. And the, the spinners that, that bowl very well in Bangladesh were the, the spinners that use the angles on the crease and curve the ball into the batsman as opposed to actually took it away from the batsman. So as the, as the tournament wore on, um, certainly the captain recognised the situation. And he always had the option. He always had three spinners in the team. But yeah. um, but by the final, he, he decided that the best best way to go was was with the pace. See um, I see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it... You've never presumably experienced anything quite like this in your sporting career. Graham, the sense that not not merely being part of a World Cup final, but it's it's, it's presumably going to be the height of the career for many of the individuals involved with this match. But how? I suppose I'm, I'm asking an impossible question. Can you explain what it felt like? I think the the initial reaction on, on winning against India was was relief because the game for me had been so tight and those those last. Mm. 40, 50 runs. You know, there were times in the, the, the scoreboard at ground to a halt. We just weren't <laughs> moving forwards. Um, balls balls uh, left were coming down very quickly. And the runs required were, were not really coming coming down at all. So the, the relief uh, on actually winning, when you thought at half-time, 1-4-6, yeah. that, that's a target that's well within our grasp. You feel um, that the game is, is there to be won. The expectation had suddenly gone from, we're playing India, they're a good side, um, we're going to give them a real good game today, but we know they've got some good players, some experienced players, and, and therefore if one of those guys comes off, makes a big 100, they get 280, then it's going to be really, really tough. 
but as I said, to have them out for less than 150, and we were at 65 for two again was another position of of, yeah. of strength. Um, and then we lost the three quick wickets. So it was the, the the game was a real roller coaster of of emotion, and you know you're you're straight on the plane the next morning, and you're, you're heading back to the Caribbean, and things are happening very quickly. And personally, it was very difficult to really take it all in. Um, a couple of weeks further on, and my, my reflections are that I've I've been fortunate enough to, to be involved as a player and as a coach with teams that have been successful, mm. um, not to the same um, level as an as a international team. But when I, when I consider my successes prior to, to this, um, I always felt going into those games, finals, competitions, that we had a really good chance. Um, nothing was taken for granted, but the expectation was 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 there. I think this competition was so different in that we didn't really know what we had on our hands, mm. and then the expectation was was always relatively low because all of the experts were saying Pakistan are favourites, Bangladesh are favourites, India are favourites, and when you when you looked at the difference in experience between the two sides. And when you looked at the number of matches that had been played, you looked at India's record, they'd gone 20-something games unbeaten, they'd lost one in, in 35. When you looked at Bangladesh's track record over the last six months, when you looked at the, the players in the Pakistan squad with first-class experience, mm. then logically you're saying to yourself, we, we are up against it. You know, we, we can't rep those sorts of uh, numbers in terms of experience, in terms of games played. But what we what we started to do from, from the Zimbabwe game was we started to um, improve the areas that had cost us in the, in the initial first three games and, and also in the England game. The captain started to, to perform. We had the introduction of an of a additional seam bowler and everybody made a contribution in those last three games. In pressure situations, somebody came up with a performance. And that that says something for the group and, and the character within that group. It wasn't a reliance on one player. It was, we need it, we need something now. I've got to be the person that, that steps up. And I've got, to, I've got to make sure that I take this opportunity. And Casey Carty in the final was, was, was a great example. He'd, yeah. he'd not had best of tournaments up until then and it was it was tough going but he stuck through it he was there he saw it through to the end and one thing that we said to our batters was that you must make sure you see things through don't leave it to, to somebody else and, yeah. and that's what he did in, in the in the in the final well man of the match in a world cup final that could never be taken away from him that, that partnership between Carty and Paul and, and as somebody myself who desperately wanted West Indies to win watching the game at 77 for 5, I thought it had gone. And I cannot remember seeing as composed and sensible a partnership by grown-up professional cricketers of any ilk as, as that in that situation. I just it, it was superb cricket, and it was mesmerising to watch. And I, I really could not believe the maturity of the pair of them. Um, you know, we're, we're already, people are starting to look ahead in terms of how, where are these going? Is going to go in the future. Mm. 
There's something that, that they have to take away is those performances in, in pressure situations against top quality opposition. Um, in, in the Bangladesh game, it was as much that the pressure and the noise and the atmosphere of the crowd, uh, as well as the um, as the opponent. In India, it was you know this is a World Cup final. You can't have uh, a, a greater reward than a, than, a, than a World Cup trophy that, that you're batting for. So if these guys can maintain, the, the, as you said, the composure, the self-belief, uh, the ability to control situations as they did there, mm. then they really do have a, have a great chance to, to progress. Um, I'm not going to say that every player is going to go on and, and, and play for the West Indies or play first-class cricket. Um, but th- those, those sorts of performances are the ones that you look at and you feel that's a player that, that really has a good chance. Yeah. But is that something you would encourage um, in the immediate future, the next year or two, if as many of these guys can get exposed at the first-class level or, or, or the Najiko Super 50 level or pl- playing with the... the the senior players um, within the Caribbean. I mean, again, one of the disadvantages that we had going into the competition was that the majority of our players are still at school and right. were still studying. Uh, I know for, for certain that of the England squad, the majority of those players had uh, either finished school or had taken a year off school specifically for the, for the World Cup. The India guys, the Bangladesh guys, had been together for months before Christmas. So they'd obviously delayed education or put it on hold or, or stopped. Uh, so the, the challenge for our guys was was going from being a schoolboy to, to being a full-time cricketer for, for six weeks. Mm. And uh, I think, we again, we saw the benefits of the, of the guys doing things on a, on a regular basis in the, in the final stages of the, of the competition. Yeah. But clearly... The idea of, of the franchise system is to professionalise the game, mm. but is also, here in the Caribbean, an opportunity to integrate some of the younger players. And, and they may not necessarily be contracted, but at least they can be working alongside the professionals with the professional support staff, so they can start to develop and grow their game and prepare themselves so that when the opportunity comes along, We've just seen over the weekend, Casey Carty got an opportunity yeah. to make his first-class debut and and go into that and be able to perform and uh, and, uh, and compete on a on a good on a good level. And he's he's made an encouraging start, making fifty in his in the second innings. Mm. Uh, but he has been one of the few that's actually been involved with the with the franchise since September. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the. The professionalisation of uh, West Indies cricket. Uh, there's been a lot of publicity about um, how the funds have been redistributed at the uh, expense, as it were, of the the, the senior players. But uh, I think it's important if West Indies cricket is going to build for the future, it needs to build from the bottom up and from the the, the youth up. And uh, I hope to see more of it. When we talked back in October, um, well, my, my, just to finish, I just want to look again towards the future. Back in October, uh, you, you said you were really encouraged by the under-19 fast bowlers coming through, and my goodness, we saw in a, a couple of them how encouraging they were. But you were very worried that uh, at the under-17 level, there didn't seem to be the same 
sort of uh, pace bowlers quality coming through. It was mainly uh, spinners and dibbly dobblies. Um, what can you do to develop the next lot that come through in the West Indies? Well, clearly the, the blueprint that we have now for success at the Under-19 World Cup level is, is predominantly based around uh, pace attack. Hmm. So if we're going to replicate that, we've got to get out there, we've got to find some, some guys, and we, we've got to develop them. We have um, plenty of time before before the next World Cup. But um, we, we do need to reach out to the, to the territories. I mean, interestingly, someone like Shamar made a lot of progress in a very short space of time because we had seen him play in, in uh, Jamaica in the under-19 competition and he had showed some promise but certainly didn't stand out to, to the level that he did uh, come January in the Najiko 50 and in February with, with us in the under-19 World Cup. So with the right opportunities and the right guidance, these guys can make um, very uh, fast progress yeah. uh, and that's something that we've, we've got to hope with, with this next batch of, uh, of players as we start to, to gear up for the, for the next campaign because we can't rest on our laurels yeah. we know all the other sides will be uh, very strong and, and experienced going into the next tournament so we, we certainly need to address this and the regional competition that will take place in July and August will be another opportunity to try to identify some more talent and, and uh, hopefully two or three will, will stand out and, and then we can really start to develop them and, and work on them within their own regions uh, and also we get the opportunity to work with them at uh, the High Performance Centre. Is, is there room to develop any of these young players though from being spinners into quick bowlers? I mean, there's been many instances in history that, that guys have developed or changed later who have natural bowling actions um, or natural physical attributes and changed. Um, Wes Hall, for example, was a wicketkeeper until his late teens, early 20s. Kirtley Ambrose didn't take up cricket until very later. Go much further back into history. Uh, one of England's most successful seamers, Maurice Tate, was an off-break bowler until his early mid-20s. Can you take some of these guys who perhaps have got good actions but a bowling spin and develop them into quick bowlers? Yeah, I think, I think the fast bowlers... They need, some, they need a bit of incentive. Um, and if you're playing on wickets that are turning rather than bouncing right. uh, and through, then you can understand why a team will, will play the extra spinner and, and, and bowl more of, of spin. Mm. Uh, if you give these guys surfaces that encourage the bowler to get it through, to, to get it to bounce, and I think you'll maintain more bowlers bowling quick rather than turning to, to spin because they can see... It's effective in, in, in youth cricket. It's still harder to, to you know, clear the field with, uh, with a slow bowler. Um, so I think that that's certainly the, the way that the pitches are prepared um, will, will have a bearing. But also the, the coaches have got to take some onus and responsibility in developing batters, fast bowlers, spinners, keepers, you know, a little bit of a cross-section rather than trying to generate a, a battery of slow bowlers that are going to be effective purely in these competitions and, and not so much in the long term. Yeah, yeah. Well, pitches is something that have been talked about a lot. There's something of very real concern in the Caribbean. Um, I hope it's something that the likes of yourself, uh, Richard Pybus and other, 
can see as part of the development programme for West Indies cricket that the pitches themselves have to be developed to um, get that focus of quality in uh, in young bowlers. And I think and something else that will benefit this particular situation is that the coaches need to work more with the batters and to be more effective in playing spin. Because if all of a sudden the, the batters yeah. are starting to dominate the slow bowlers, then they recognise that they need to bowl you know, quicker bowlers and have more quicker bowlers in the team at the moment. Because the methods to play spin are not particularly good, again, it encourages you to develop spinners and, and, and bowl lots of overs of spin because it is effective. Yeah, yeah. Well, those are things for the future. Uh, you're back at work now. I know you took 10 days off when you got back to, to, to Barbados. Uh, what's your immediate programme now? Or is uh, things uh, a bit more routine back at the office? Well, the key for me is to, to catch up with Courtney Brown because Courtney and the selectors have been watching the uh, the PCO and, and the Nagico, which I've missed whilst I've been away. Um, we, we're in the process of developing some some squads, looking very much at emerging players. So um, by having a conversation with Courtney, I'll find out a little bit in terms of who's been performing well um, in, in the PCL and, and the Magico, having looked at the scorecards but not really got to, to follow any of the uh, of the matches themselves. Mm. As, we, as we look to really uh, develop a pool of players that hopefully over the next five years can supplement, support and, and um, integrate in, into the senior team and make that side competitive in, in all forms of the game. Yeah, yeah. Well, best of luck with that. Um... I hope and I understand that the uh, under-19s are going to be playing in next year's Najico Super 50 tournament, so that will presumably involve a lot of these players, uh, and I would hope you'll be involved in that. Yeah, no, very much so, and um, we need to to keep working at find ways to bridge this gap between the under-19 and, and the senior team level uh, within, within the franchises. We've got to make sure that these guys do get to play a good amount of competitive cricket and they're also given the right support, whether it be physical, whether it be mental, whether it be technical or tactical, so that they can keep growing and keep developing. What we really don't want is for some of these guys to not receive that and their games not move forwards. We know now that they have real potential, but it's still you know, it's very much in the early stages. But if it does get the right support, then uh, um, the future could be really positive. Oh, absolutely. I think there's many, many of us that are really hoping that that's the case and that you could, uh, in your own position, help to get these guys to bridge that gap and, and come through on the wider stage and hopefully see an upward curve in West Indies cricket. But I want to thank you ever so much for joining me. Um, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Just before I let you go, though, uh, you, you touched upon it right at the beginning of uh, our conversation. You were just interviewed by Charles Colville for Sky, uh, amongst many others. What, what was he out there doing, uh, and when can we uh, look forward to seeing these interviews? He was in the Caribbean to do um, a, a number of things. Sky are piecing together um, several uh, articles, um, which I believe would, will uh, be shown during the test match breaks in, in the summer. Okay. The one that he spoke to, to me about was, was very much uh, an article or a piece 
on where West Indies cricket is at the moment, uh, looking at the introduction of the PCL over the last 18 months. Yeah. And when they initially looked to do the story, um, the Under-19 World Cup was just beginning, clearly with the guys doing so well. It became um, a, a, an extra or an additional interest to, to the article. So he actually interviewed both Shamar Springer and Holder. Right. Um, and the boy, which the boys handled very, very well and very professionally. I think mm-hmm. uh, that, that's been one of the real uh, benefits from, from the competition was that the players got a lot of opportunity to develop that side of their um, their skill set, if you like, and um, they came across very well. And uh, so it was just really for me to talk a little bit about the, the areas that I'd worked on, um, a little bit on, on the World Cup, and a little bit on um, where West Indies cricket looks to go over the, the, the next couple of years. So I think it will be a, a very positive piece, and um, we'll probably look forward to seeing that sometime when the Test matches start in uh, in May and June in England. Oh, I look forward to watching that, and uh, I'm sure it'll be very informative. And we hope that uh, things in West Indies cricket continue on this positive upward curve. And, uh, well, on behalf of everybody, I want to thank you and the players for, for giving us all such an uplift. Well, it was, it was just uh, good to be part of their journey. I mean, they... they uh... They, they were outstanding and, and, and fantastic. And uh, I have to say also that the management team worked superbly well. It was a very, very strong unit. And um, we had times where we uh, we needed to really dig in as a, as a group. And, uh, and we did that. But I'm sure the relationships that we've developed over the last few weeks will, will, will last for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. And let's hope that it does last for a long time. And we also see... Uh, some immediate impact upon uh, West Indies cricket in general. Graham, thank you ever so much for joining me. And, uh, well, I look forward to speaking to you sometime again in the future. I look forward to it, David. This has been uh, an extra edition of uh, The Willow in the Windies, the Caribbean cricket podcast, uh, with me, David Orman. And I was joined by Graham West, the World Cup winning under-19 coach of the West Indies. I hope you can join me again sometime soon. Bye-bye.